Alpert and T1 Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his inaugural appearance. Making his inaugural appearance is the founder of Dodgers Digest, formerly known as Mike Sosha's Tragic Illness, but currently known as Dodgers Digest and is also a contributor to Fangraphs.com. His name is Mike Petriello. In what follows, uh, I ask Mike about the curiosity that is Miami Marlins right-hander Henderson Alvarez. I ask him about that. What is curious about Henderson Alvarez in particular? I inquire as to what degree working from home as a baseball writer, as a baseball internet weblogger, to what degree that might accidentally prevent him from going outside, which is a, an area of interest in which everyone's interested in. And then uh, finally, and not just once, uh, I compel Mike Petriello to say aloud one of the former nicknames uh, of the of the Brook of the Brooklyn baseball team. Super Boss. That is, uh, again, one of the former nicknames of the Brooklyn baseball team. Super Boss. If at times it sounds like uh, Mike Petriello is talking to me by way of tin can phone, it's because he's in New York and I'm in Paris. He's in New York and I'm in Paris. It's a call across the ocean is what it is. What else it is is Fangraphs Audio featuring Mike Petriello, and it begins right now. Super Boss. So I have no uh, cultural, like, touchstones to, you know, like, what I, this is my first year I've ever lived here. Uh, and, well, you know, likely my last. Um, I don't know when holidays are, and I guess today is a holiday. Or what it's like, holiday? yeah, it's like a half holiday. What, what are they celebrating? Oh, see, I didn't look that up, but I could tell you <laughs> that the place that sells, um, uh, the place that sells the frozen food that I get when my wife is away is uh, is closed. So you may starve to death before the end of the day. Well, the, I, I I mean I managed to lock down some food, so don't worry <laughs> about it. Um, but but yeah, it it happens sometimes that um yeah, there's just like a holiday, and in th- in this case, it doesn't seem like a huge one. It's just it's like a half holiday. There, there are a bunch of places open for just a half a day or whatever. I don't again, I don't really understand what it is. I and I could also very easily look it up. But please rest assured that I did not do that. <laughs> I could have very easily. Um, how, how are you doing? I'm yeah, very good. Hey. I am uh, here. I hear the um, I hear the Daves are coming to town this weekend, so I might catch up with them for a drink. Oh my! Oh yeah, yeah. You oh when Dave Cameron gets drunk, he becomes uh, irresponsible. I I don't know that I've ever seen that, and I, I don't know that I expect to see that. No, I wouldn't expect. To, I don't think he. I don't think he drinks. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. But um, but I, but do you see if this were if this were a if this were improv comedy, Mike Petriello, it would be your responsibility to say yes and. Well, I, what I can say is that you're one of the few people, a few podcast partners I've ever had who's actually pronounced my name like perfectly. Oh, what do people say? Uh, you name it. You know, Petriolo, uh, Petrillo, that's a big one. But nobody ever seems to get the that middle syllable down in the way that you just have. Yeah, right. Well, uh, I mean uh, – I, I don't know if other people ha- – I, I assume that other I'm – not, I'm not that special is the point. I assume other people are naturally uh, – feel natural kinship, you know, totally unearned kinship with uh, people who, who have uh, – also have Italian names or have a name that's like theirs or ethnic background that's like theirs. And so – uh, Yeah, I'm yeah. – my point is that 
I'm definitely willing to give you, regardless of how you to behave, I would give you the benefit of the doubt in most cases. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you have you haven't abused uh, you haven't abused that privilege. Not that it's not really a privilege, but uh, you haven't really given me cause to employ it. But uh, I would be willing to. You would be willing. You'd be able to get away with being just a little bit more of a dickhead than other people would. <laughs> Well, you hung out with me for like five straight days and didn't want to kill me. So, I mean, I think that's a step in the right direction. No, you were totally great. And, and what you're referencing is uh, is uh, our trip to the desert. That's right, which was quite enjoyable. Yeah, I think it was. And that was your first one. Uh, first one with the fan graphs, yes. Oh, you've, oh, right, right. Now, have you ever done like um, – I think that was maybe the fifth one we've done to the desert. Have you ever done like a like a team-building a team building trip like that? Have you ever done anything like that? Uh, no, not, not out of state, anything like that. I don't think that I have. Did you ever go on any, uh, school trips? Um, probably, but that would be like, you know, two decades ago. Yeah, yeah, it would. Um, yeah, did you, uh, so, so if this is, a, like, ostensibly your first time, uh, doing this sort of thing, spending, I guess, uh, a large amount of time, consecutive, consecutive hours with your, with, uh, well, Presumably, colleagues, did you uh, appeal to you? You think? Uh, very much so, because most of these people were, uh, you know, internet people. Really, the only people I'd met in person before that were Eno and uh, Dave Appleman. So yeah. to get to see, you know, meet you in person and Paul and, and David Temple and all those guys in Cameron is, I think it was a, a trip well worth making. Yeah, and then some people you probably maybe regret having met. I assume uh, only a few, but you know, you no, know, no names, names, right? but, you know, no, I, you know. know I, but Eno, but Eno though, right? <laughs> well, uh, we'll, we'll just uh, let's move on from that. Yeah, let's move on. It's, <laughs> it's uncomfortable because it's true. Um, so, uh, uh, I, I, I wanna, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to I'd like to run the gamut with you. Sure. But let's first let's first uh, we could start off discussing the um, the thing we've come here to discuss, or the sort of pretense, the, the the flimsy pretense upon which I contacted you, which is the fact that you wrote about Henderson Alvarez. Yes, and, and I can't say I get contacted a lot to talk about Marlins-related topics, uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, look, well, it, it, we won't really, I, we, I'm guessing we, we won't dwell on it at length, but the, how about, here's a thesis, or maybe a hypothesis, um, Henderson Alvarez is, is a tiny bit of a weirdo. Uh, that's why he's so interesting, is that? Yeah. Well, okay. So, so he he. So the thing I did not know until I read your piece, uh, which was at the site yesterday, is that he has a, um, a he has a dedicated windup for the first pitch of the game. Yeah, and I, I actually didn't know that myself until I started doing a little bit of research for this. And uh, there's an animated gif of it in there, and it's real weird because he does this thing where he like dips down and has his hands almost to his feet, kind of comes back up and then throws. Uh, someone in the comments said it looked like half. Half a Hideo Nomo windup, which I thought was an interesting way to put it. And he only ever does it for the first pitch of the game, and then never does because he seems like a weird dude, and that's the kind of thing that would entertain him. Yeah, and it entertained I, me. Right? Yeah, no, I think it was. I was actually going to ask permission, um, and I could find out how many of them there are here. I was going to ask permission to to uh, produce animated gifts of all of them, at least from the season. Uh, I think you absolutely should, because I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, I think it would be. But now, so. So you, so you, how did you first notice it? Because you were looking into Henderson Alvarez and the fact that he's thrown two shut up, uh, shutouts in recent days. 
Um, I noticed it because, yeah, I, I was doing some research, and so I hadn't watched the game live, and I put on the MLB TV broadcast and just kind of had it on in the background while I was starting to write. And then I, I think they, they either talked about it as he did it, or I noticed it, and I was like, hey, that's really weird. I don't remember him always pitching like that. And I, I did some Googling and found out that he really just does it for the first pitch. Um, and he says, I invented it myself, as though it would have come from somewhere else. <laughs> well, it's the, I mean, and you, you mentioned or that, that, a, that a commenter had referred to it as Hideo Nomo. It also has, for me, like, uh, it, it invokes the sort of wind-ups that you might have seen, like, Warren Spahn use. Well, that's a, a great point. That's yeah. a great point because someone else said Paul Bird, who is like notorious for having a 1940s windup. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, yeah, like so, like you could, you have to have like baggy stirruped pants, and um, you can't be. Well, the the one the one inconsistency is that he's a black person. Um. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> South American, I guess we can go right. either way on that. Yeah, yeah. But he, he actually is kind of an old school guy because he uh, strikes out just about nobody, so he'd have fit in real well in like 1952. Right. So, um, so have you? I, I mean, you mentioned Paul Bird. I'm curious. Like, uh, you've been around baseball. At least, I mean, you've you know paid attention to it. You know, for probably 25 years, something like that. Can you remember? Can you remember anyone? Can you remember anyone having a windup, or having like a essentially like a yeah, like like a novelty windup? Can you? Is that a, something you've ever heard of? Uh, that only happens once per game. I can't remember anybody who's ever done that. I mean, you know, Paul Bird did it full time. Some of the, uh, I would say some of the Asian pitchers have windups you don't see all that often here, like Hideo Nomo, obviously, at Daisuke Matsuzako with his little hitch that he used to do. Um, but I, I, there's not a lot of, of examples like that that really stand out just as far as the windup that I could think. So that's why this really stood out, especially because he just does it the one time, which is so weird. Right. And I think, like, like in terms of other windups, like no, notable windups, right? I think like uh, Dontrell Willis. Oh, very great example. I yeah. mean, he was. It, it, there was something that was um, sort of. There was like some element of nostalgia, I think, in his windup, um, in the sense that it had. Uh, well, in the sense it was something you noted, right? Like I, I when I think of like very plain windups, I think of like, um, like I think Mike Mussina, right, had like classic pitcher mechanics, right. Yeah, very much so. Uh, um, I think also a guy like uh, Bronson Arroyo, he's got that leg kick that he just kind of sticks out there. Oh yeah, right. The, yeah, the leg kick. The leg kick is really great. Uh, um, there was uh, so 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 um, yeah. Bronson Arroyo is fun for that reason. Although he's got, he's a silly man in other ways. I think we can all. Yeah. I actually, my old band, one of my crappy old bands, we recorded NEP in the same Boston studio where Bronson Arroyo had recorded his album of just covers. And uh, we asked we asked the engineer like, oh, what was it like recording with Bronson Arroyo? And he's like, he's a real good pitcher, <laughs> <laughs> and, and a silly man. Well, I think like asking asking someone to be, I mean, even if he's not, uh, I wouldn't say he's a dominant pitcher, uh, but he's what he's cobbled together more than a ten year career. Uh, so that's uh, that must put him in the top whatever one percent of something, right? I mean, he must. Uh, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good showing. Yeah, for, I mean, a lot of years, he was a real dependable guy in uh, Cincinnati. It hasn't gone super well in Arizona so far, but then really nothing's gone very well in Arizona so far. Right. Uh, also, uh, with regard to uh, um, to notable and compelling windups, uh, Johnny Cueto, I think, has a pretty good one. He sort of, he, he turns his back to the, um, he turns his back to the batter, which I, or to the plate in general, which I think is, I, uh, it, there's some, there's something, uh, there's something daring about that. About uh, taking your eyes off the plate because it suggests yeah. 
it suggests that you don't really like you. Maybe you're working on another plane, uh, where like another layer, you know, layer of consciousness where you don't actually need to see the plate in order to to dominate as a pitcher. And you know the way he's been pitching, maybe maybe that's the right way to go about it. Well, he's been fantastic, right? I mean, because he's always been. I think he's always outperformed his uh, like his his uh, defense independent numbers pretty considerably. He's which, which he's doing again. At least the last time I checked, he's doing again. But his defense independent numbers are are like are better than they've ever been as well. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to keep up a one thirty one ERA all season long. But you know, he's been fantastic. He's striking out more, giving up you know a relatively low amount of walks, not giving up a lot of home runs. I mean, that, I think he's got like a one fifty. You know, Babip or something like that, which isn't going to last. But he's—it's really just always been about help of him. If he can right. stay healthy. He's always been a very good pitcher. Right. And I think um, one of his skills and one of the reasons why he does, uh, why he is able to outperform his peripherals, is because he—I th- I think he's one of the best, certainly among the certainly the best, one of the best right-handers at holding runners on base. Yes, he is very good. And yeah. uh, I, I'm just looking at his page now. He's—he's he's learned how to strike people out like almost consistently over the last four years. It's like up, 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 up a step. Right. And this year he's actually. Uh, his swing strike rate, you know, 10.4%. So if he doesn't hurt his arm again, I think he'll be fine. Yeah, and that's actually, and it should be noted, um, and I'm sure probably like 99% of our listeners know this already, but that's not generally, well, it's not generally the way anyone ages. It's it's definitely the way pitchers age. Uh, usually they just get kind of, I mean, uh, a little, they just get worse is usually what happens. <laughs> but yeah, Eno actually wrote something like that. It was like, the best day of a pitcher's career is like his first day, and then right. from there on out, it just like the velocity will go straight down. Right, and I guess that, usually, that's, right. That's the entire population, and right. Obviously, there are exceptions, and there are guys who adopt new pitches and are able to adapt constantly. But uh, right, those are the those are the exceptions. Uh, I mean, I guess in some ways it's like a league of exceptions, right? Because even in professional baseball, there are way, way, way more uh, players who are in the minor leagues. There are way more people who don't make the majors than than do, and so really you're just like seeing, like when you watch any major league baseball game, you're just seeing like an entire collection of people who are exceptions to the rules that typically govern base humans, but in and in particular baseball players. Right. I mean, obviously, like the worst player in professional baseball is still really really good at baseball. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's and that's the other difficult thing that always happened to me because I I never I never played like I played baseball in high school which is fine but I was like very aware of the fact that I was not going to be a major league baseball player but I did play um, I did play tennis at like a slightly higher level especially relative to you know like area competition and um, it's a what 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 always astounded me was how was even despite the fact that like I was pretty decent for my region. And my region was New Hampshire, which is a, small, a pretty small region. But even being decent for there, I um, I was uh, ne- I was I w- when I would even play like a like a good kid from Massachusetts, I would lose six zero six zero. Like I wouldn't have lost any worse if I just um, like walked off the court after losing the first point. Um, and I, and like it always struck me, especially like. Going to the U.S. Open at Flushing Meadows, when I would, you know, get like even go to like you, know, you go to the back courts and you could sit really close. How good they were, and there's just that like tremendous gap in talent between people who like for me like I played like a lot for ten years and then was just uh, and how much better people could be at it than me. And that's why I kind of get it, even though I don't always agree when people when players are like, oh well, what does that guy know? He's sitting on a computer, you know, he doesn't know anything about the game, because if 
secure within the game and you can do those things that we clearly cannot do, you've got to understand why they would not, you know, maybe not respect some of the opinions, even if they're well thought out and based in fact. Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah, yeah I, I would uh, I would say that writers are, writers are probably more fungible than, uh, than actual ballplayers are. Uh, yeah, you could probably replace a writer a whole lot easier than you could replace, say, an all-star shortstop. Yeah, that seems right. right. Um, so, uh, so that's, I don't know, Henderson Alvarez, weirdo. He, uh, wait, so, uh, we, how has he done that? How has he shut people out? Is it just a function of, uh, you know, uh, getting fortunate with some batted balls, or is he actually doing something that, which apparently, like, the whole, their whole pitching staff is doing, which is succeeding, with the exception maybe of Jacob Turner? He doesn't actually have a, a particularly standout batted ball rate. I mean, it's, it's I think, roughly league average around. Um, but what's interesting about that entire rotation is they have the highest zone rate, their zone percentage in baseball. Like they are throwing strikes more than any other rotation is in baseball, you know, which is a pretty great way not to give up walks is by not throwing balls. Um, but, you know, for Alvarez, the first time he really ever entered by consciousness was a couple years ago because he had that you know, 380 strikeouts per nine rate, which is just – it's like unfathomable that someone in today's game could strike up so few guys in the American League East uh, and survive an entire season. I mean, you know, survive. Not that he was very good because ERA was like five and his FIP was about five. But that that's really what stood out to me about him. And then, you know, he strikes out a little more last year and a little more this year. And he still doesn't strike out very many. But what it seems that he's done is he's got this fastball that, yeah, I guess it's straight. He doesn't get a lot of you know whips on it, but it's still 95, 96 miles an hour. You have to respect it. And now he's improved his control. You know, he's hitting the corners. He's got improved secondary pitches. So it's not so much about more strikeouts. It's about, you know, getting swinger, hitters to swing at his pitches while getting, like, a slight amount of more strikeouts so that it's not an embarrassing rate. Right. And and, and actually, this almost the achievement of that, that mark you mentioned from a couple years ago, the low strikeout mark, it was that the fact that he was – yeah, he was throwing quite hard back then. And typically – uh, there is some sort of correlation between uh, between velocity and strikeout rate. There, there absolutely is, and it's that's why he's such an anomaly. Because um, I think I look, I forget what the number was. There's something like a thousand pitcher seasons of at least 180 innings in this century, and like 96.2 percent of them or whatever had a higher strikeout rate than he did. But those are guys either at the end of their career or who never pitched again or threw 85 miles an hour. Like it wasn't guys who'd come up and throw as hard as he does. Uh, which really make it interesting. I think, you know, another one of the things that really has helped him is over the last couple of years, the break, like the vertical break on all of his pitches has kind of widened a little bit so that they don't all look like essentially the same pitch. Like his slider and his changeup aren't the same thing now. Like now he's got two different pitches to fool hitters with. And I think that's that's another thing that's really helped him. Yeah. Well, I know, I know that uh, you, because I had, I had written a piece about him maybe a year and a half ago now um, in which he had started throwing a harder changeup. But in that, in that post, uh, which I reviewed uh, before we were talking here. There is a there is a graph of this pitch of of his pitch of X chart, and you know it's sort of pitch of X because it you know the way it sort of uh, the code is written or whatever. It's gonna um, it's gonna you know place different labels on pitches, but there was just essentially a blob. Uh, there was just like a giant blob of pitches. There was not any, really any. Any way you could distinguish, from, you know, between the fastball or the or the slider or the changeup is, you know, and at some point he started throwing his changeup harder, so it looked, you know, it looked basically like a two seamer. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's totally uh, it jives with what I've seen. And then you look at now, and his his four seamer and his slider actually, there's like a big difference between those two. Where 
you know, two years ago, maybe there wasn't so much and the sinker was in the middle of that. And you, know, you can throw hard, but if everything kind of moves in a similar way, then it's not really going to help you miss a lot of bats, which is exactly what we saw. Right. I was I was having – there seems to be uh, – and this is uh, this is uh, even less than a hypothesis. Whatever is less than a hypothesis, it seems to be that there's some – we're talking about this with regard to Henderson Alvarez, how essentially like he's gotten better just by sticking around. Uh, I Watching Rick Porcello yesterday um, and then as I was doing that, also sort of uh, you know going back and forth between him actually pitching and uh, looking at his, his page of the site – he seems to be an example of a pitcher who's benefited from this too, um, in the sense that it's like he's he's stuck around long enough at this point to probably a develop his command and also b like he's picked up a, like a pitch or two. I, you know his curveball uh, usage I think spiked one year, uh, maybe that was last year, and um, whatever else he's doing, like he's actually turned into. I mean at this point. Uh, you know, I mean, he's posted uh, uh, like an XFIP like 20% below league average thus far, um, and he's actually he's not really relying on his two seamer or you know to the ground ball as much anymore. He's sort of doing it a, going about things a different way. But it, it seems as though it, you know he was always a pitcher who was recognized as having uh, potential and was able to pitch for a certain number of years just based off of like his physical tools, I guess, and the fact that he threw strikes and got ground balls. But by sheer, like, repetition, he's actually now almost stumbled into being uh, an above-average pitcher as opposed merely just to, like, a pretty good one. Yeah, and, and really not at all the way I expected this year. Like, I, I thought the India, I mean, the Tigers have changed their defense so much this year that, you know, Miguel Cabrera's not a third and Fielder's not a first, and they would have Iglesias that. Being a ground ball pitcher, that's actually not a bad place to be. Uh, and then... None of that really happened because Iglesias got hurt and the Indians – the Tigers' defense has really been just terrible all year. Like, it's one of the worst defenses in baseball. But he's kind of stopped throwing grounders. I mean, he's thrown like 12 or 15% fewer grounders than he used to. Uh, he's just stopped walking guys. I mean, six walks and six starts is a real fantastic way to keep runs off the board. Uh, and that is, for the most part, what he's done. It's it's interesting to see a guy, you know, change his approach so much like that. Right. Uh, okay, I'm going to uh – this is this is not a great uh, radio segue or podcast segue, but it's happening. So prepare yourself. Um, I wanted to now. We, you and I talked uh, as as noted before. We we uh, met each other for the first time. Spent some time in Arizona. Um, I was able to glean some information about you uh, uh, because I'm interested in who you are as a person. Um, I feel as though as a host of a show like this, it's important to ask questions to which you don't know the answer, so that you're genuinely curious. Um, now, because I've asked you certain questions, that might seem like a problem. However, I made what, it, in retrospect, is a wise decision, uh, in that I asked you those questions while I was drinking, and so, <laughs> and so I don't remember all of the answers. Um, and so that's actually good. So I will be able to to go go ahead from this point on, uh, in uh, with my heart full of curiosity. Um, and I guess uh, so. Here's here's a dumb. Here, these are all going to be dumb questions. So prepare yourself. Uh, you are Mike Petriello. We've established that. You are a person who I believe is from New Jersey, but you are also a person who's, to the degree that you are known, uh, you're known largely for having started a Los Angeles Dodgers website. That is correct. Yeah, and so that happened because now you go. <laughs> uh, why am I a Dodger fan? Is that yeah, what the question right, is yeah, here? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I feel like I should just have a, like a little flash drive audio player in my pocket with the 
recorded answer to that because it's a question I get like a million times, which is totally fair because why should someone from the Jersey Shore like the Dodgers? Um, and if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, from Brick Township? That is – wow, I'm impressed. Yeah, I did uh, min- minimal research, but I will say Brick Township is a funny thing because it's a funny – name. it just sounds they, like someone, whoever was designing it, just looked around and decided that uh, – and like saw – I mean, really just saw a brick and was like, well, that's – it's going to be well, a good you, name. You'll be interested, possibly, to know that the uh, one of the bordering townships is named Wall. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, do, you, do you know how Brick Township became so-called? Uh, Joseph Brick. Oh, Joseph Brick. And what is yeah. – uh, he didn't uh, hand out smallpox blankets to natives. So uh, like this. I, I imagine – I don't know, actually. We, uh, there's quite a, a Native American population in a lot of town names near where I'm from, like Manasquan and Manalooking. And I, I don't know exactly what he or anybody else did to uh, – Let's say, take over that area. Yeah, right. Yeah. Settle, settle is a is that's it might be euf- frequently euphemistic, I would assume, uh, but it's what we've agreed upon. So, uh, so you became a, a Dodgers, you became a Dodgers fan and then writer. How? Uh, well, you can also sure. lie if you want, if it makes you feel better. If you're tired of this question. Uh, yeah, well, let's see. My grandpa is uh, Tommy Lasorda. Okay. No, yeah. The short, here's a short version. Uh, I grew up in the '80s, um, and the Local Yankees team was just unwatchably terrible at that point, and for whatever reason, I didn't care about the bets. I don't know why. And you know, you sign up for T-ball, and you play at least at the time. You got a T-shirt with some sort of steam-pressed logo on the front, and it might could have said Cubs or Braves or Mets or whatever. But somehow, for through the luck of chance, for the first three years, it was always the Dodgers. Um, and then in 1988, I was seven years old, and Kirk Gibson hits that home run, and seven-year-olds are idiots. And I'm like, oh, I'm on the Dodgers. He's in the Dodgers. I love the Dodgers from now on, and it just kind of took off from there. Yeah, seven-year. I'm glad you pointed out that seven-year-olds are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is absolutely true. I mean, through, lar- largely through no fault of their own. Uh, their brains are not fully formed. So, um, so wait, even the uh, even the Kevin Moss, even the Kevin Moss era, Yankees did not appeal to you. I vividly remember that. I think I was in the, the park for like his third and fourth homers or something. Yeah, he uh, he. Oh, I guess that would have been the '90s though. Maybe that was a little 90, bit later. '91, as I imagine. Yeah, right. '91. And didn't didn't Moss have like a? Didn't he have like a whole? Were there ladies who would take off their shirts for Kevin Moss? Uh, I think I was like ten, so maybe I wasn't noticing that much at the time. But it, it, mm. I don't remember that happening. Oh wow! Yeah, well, I, heads up on that. Um, <laughs> Anyway, you can uh, you can check that out on Google later. <laughs> Seems like a thing to do. Uh, okay, so you became that, and then how do you um, how did you become? Wait, so how did you become a baseball writer? Where did you go to college? Boston University. Oh yeah, right. I remember this from one of our yeah. conversations. <laughs> our alcohol. Yeah, right. And that and uh, that go well. What did you study? History, which has totally helped me out. Yeah, I'm sure it has. Well, no, uh, I think that you were uh, if you go to a school like Boston University, which uh, I don't know what it's actually like there. It has a good reputation, though. Uh, it is. I, I, my junior year, I lived about 200 feet from Fenway Park. Oh, well, that's also that's also that's a bonus. Uh, but no, I would assume that at a school like Boston University, um, the ethic on campus would would be something like this. Would be uh, it doesn't necessarily matter what you study as um, as long as you're participating in the, the liberal arts, which help you become a sort of person who can think. There, I think there's some truth to that. I am uh, I'm fun at trivia nights for sure. Okay, because. yeah, that's not precisely what I. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you don't you don't you develop a, you be, you become acquainted with uh, the liberal arts tradition, the Western intellectual tradition, and you, uh, yeah. to, and you learn how to learn. 
I think that's true. Um, I, I think that at that age, that really helps you. And especially for me, like, you know, living in a, an urban environment, a major city, I think that, that really helped you too. Now, my wife went to Indiana, which is a very not urban, uh, campus, and she says the exact opposite, that she loves that, and that helped shape her. So, uh, you know, everyone's got their own individual experiences about that kind of thing. So, did you, uh, so I went to, um, before, um, I, I left slash was asked to leave, um, I went to a, uh, a, a, a university, with an urban environment in New York, and I actually found it to be – well, I wanted it to be a distraction. It ended up being a different type of distraction. Um, I wanted to, like, uh, go out and do um, excellent things, and then the way it became a different sort of distraction was that um, I didn't have enough money to do any of those things, and so I would just uh, – I just sat alone uh, basically in, like, uh, my room or – uh, which had roommates, so I was I was alone with other people, which is the saddest type of alone. Yeah, um, I think we, I think we've all been there at various points. Yeah, you know, in fact, one of us, no 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 fewer than one of us, is is, is like that right now. Um, it's me. <laughs> well, I work from home right now, so I know it's me and the cats most of the day. Yeah, um, there you go. The uh, but so did you find that that studying in an urban environment was actually helpful to you? I think I, it helped me realize that I am a city person. I mean, ever since then, I've lived in, you know, Manhattan. And while I won't live in Manhattan forever, I can't imagine myself ever living far from a city. Like, I can't imagine myself ever living in a place where it's like, let's go out to a fancy deal uh, meal, and that is Applebee's. Oh, yeah. Uh, really? Okay. Well, what about, like, a mid-size? So, like, for example, you bring up uh, Indiana University. I don't know if Bloomington is the best example of this, but um, – uh, I have now had the opportunity to live in some college towns in these United States, and I would say that those typically um, are examples of towns which have uh, which offer quite a bit of culture relative to the to the population, uh, the size of the population. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think you know, I think Bloomington might be a little too small, but if, you know, Boston is certainly a college town, and I would absolutely move back there. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be in Manhattan. I mean, it's, there's not really much bigger I can do than to be, you know, a 10-minute walk from Times Square. But I, I, we're also not going to be in the middle of nowhere either. Right. Uh, um, so you learned history. What, did you have a specialty? Do you have a history specialty? Uh, American history, 20th century, I suppose. Okay. Who's uh, what's a like? What's a top? What is that? Uh, um, uh, who's the guy? Howard Zinn. Do you read Howard Zinn every in every class? No, actually, in, in just about zero classes that I have to read Howard Zinn. Oh, you said have to. You don't care for him. Uh, no, I, I honestly have not had much exposure to him. Oh, okay. I mean, I know, I'm aware of who he is, but I, I have not read much of his work. What about Richard Hofstetter? Is he a person? He's, that sounds like a person. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm really just, uh, yeah, I'm fishing. Uh, this, this is what I remember from history. Uh, so what I mean, you are an actual published poet. I, I feel like you have a, more of a depth of knowledge on some of these things than I might. Uh, 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 that's kind of you, at the very least. Uh, so what is the so what uh, so you're focusing on it now? Or would there be any? Um, I, I suppose like right, certainly in the way that uh, literature works, um, especially uh, especially you know as you get as you get into the uh, you know you get into the advanced um, advanced degrees, is you will typically align yourself. With a particular, I guess, theoretical school or something of this sort, is that something that would happen as, a, as an undergraduate, or are you more just uh, uh, introducing yourself to? I mean, it's you know, history. It's uh, here's history. <laughs> no, I honestly, I chose history because I enjoyed it, but I certainly had no 
expectations of ever, you know, working in that field. It was like I was a, you know, liberal liberal arts major and I needed to pick something, more or less. And so that's what I ended up with. And by the time I figured out what I wanted to do, it was really after college. So that was kind of that. And it's more about the name of the school than the uh, the degree I, I hold. I would say at this point. So what did you? So what? Wait, when you figured out what did you what, what you wanted to do? What what was the thing you wanted to do? Uh, well, I think some something similar to what I'm doing now, which is work in, in media. So my senior year, I interned for Nesson, which is the Red Sox TV station. Oh yeah, uh, well, I'm uh, as a child of New England, I'm wholly familiar with Nesson. Yes, I have some I have some stories that cannot be told uh, publicly from that year. Uh, just from being around the players, which is hilarious, because that was, that was 2003. I mean, that was, you know, right before it was the year oh. they beat the ALCS and the Yankees and before they won the World Series. So that was an interesting year to be around Boston. Yes, uh, that was a – well, I wasn't in Boston then, but I was I was in Missoula, Montana, um, for, at which I would go to uh, – which town I would go to Claudia's Sports Bar every night to watch the Red Sox um, on, you know, on Nesson or whatever, you know, MLB Extra Innings was – whatever feed they were sending out. And then uh, I remember distinctly the end of that season. Were, were you around for the end of that season? Uh, I did not work there for the playoffs, but, mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was in town with all of my Red Sox fan friends, so I remember it very well. So you just observed – Were you, would you say you were partial by that time when uh, um, um, he, he who shall not be named hit a home run off Tim Wakefield at Yankee Stadium? Um, I think I had just got, I was at like a comedy show or something, and I think I walked into a bar to watch the end of that game, and the very first pitch was that home run, and the whole bar just fell totally silent, and yeah. we walked out. Uh, but no, did I ever root for the Red Sox? No, I, I, I've always been a Dodger fan. I enjoyed, I, I love Fenway. I enjoyed, you know, the passion of the town, but I, I was never wearing Sox hats or anything like that. No, you, so you, so you grew up in New Jersey, you mentioned the passion of the town, um, you know, as as someone who is from New England, for me, it was surprising when I moved other places to find uh, to to live in places where people were not as enthusiastic about baseball. Because you could probably speak to this. I'm interested in your your point of view as someone who's a little bit. Of an, I mean, you're from the Northeast, but not from Boston. It's my, my sense about Boston is that you don't necessarily have to be a sports fan to be a Red Sox fan because it sort of has a religious quality to it. I I would say that that is absolutely true. I think if you know comparing it to New York, I think there are plenty of people here who have never been to a Yankees game, but I don't think there are plenty of people who live in Boston who have never been to a Red Sox game. I mean, and not even just for the baseball, just the experience. Of, you know, is there anything better than a day in the sun? I mean, at any ballpark, really, at Dodger Stadium, at Wrigley Field, or whatever, but, you know, especially at a park with a history like Fenway, you know, watching the game, having a beer, I mean, it's, it's great. And then, especially since they've been so good for the last, you know, 15 years now, that's really helped. Yeah, although I would submit that, and I don't know if this is the case for you, uh, my appreciation of the game it, it is hard. It's, is it possible for me to separate my appreciation for the game I'm watching from how much I paid for it? <laughs> well, that, you know, my wife really enjoys minor league baseball, and I think part of that is because you get good seats for ten bucks. It, it is true. Yeah. Now, where do you guys do? Because you're, you're right in Manhattan. Where do you? Uh, where do you go for minor league baseball? Uh, Brooklyn. The uh, the Cyclones, the the Mets single A team, have a park like right on Coney Island, like literally next to the rise, and you can see it beyond left field and the. Beach is right beyond right field, so it's a, it's a pretty fun place to see a game. Yeah, and I and I would say uh, I've been to to that field as well and enjoy it a lot. It, the one thing I, I think it's so I think it's very interesting about that park, at least from my experience, is that you find at least the times I think I've been there three times, maybe I found always people, uh, older people who were as who were essentially Brooklyn Dodgers fans, and they're and they're sort of like. Uh, 
revisiting their baseball experience. And it's like the first team they've been allowed to let back in to their lives. Uh, I, I'd say that's, that's true. I, I, when I wear my baseball cap around, I have a Brooklyn Dodgers hat instead of an L.A. Dodgers hat. And you'd be surprised at the amount of older gentlemen who will stop me and want to talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers because they, I guess they don't see that all that often and it you know, reminds them of their childhood and whatnot. But here we are 60-something years later, and that's, that is still a talking point for so many people. Now, do you have a? I assume that your your knowledge of no, what because you became like you know you mentioned you became a, a Dodgers fan largely because of the it was it was the Kirk Gibson home run yeah that was what you said right yes but I imagine in the meantime especially as you've become a writer for the team um, or a writer I should say a, a writer concerned about the team uh, that you have looked backwards as well uh, into the club's history it's been part of your trajectory. Mm-hmm. That's, is that is that a fair statement to make? So you're pretty you you would be aware, you would be pretty well aware of Dodgers, uh, not just pre Kirk Gibson but pre pre uh, Westward move. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm I am aware of the team's history. So you're you're so you're able to talk uh, you're able to talk Brooklyn Dodgers for as long as uh, an elderly man would. Well, I, I guess it depends on how elderly. I mean, most of them want to talk about the, you know, the glory years, right? Like the Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese and all that. But I think people kind of forget that for the first you know, 45, 50 years of the of the 20th century, that Brooklyn Dodger baseball was just really terrible. I mean, there's very few positive memories from that era. Now, wait, do you have uh, here, here? Here would be this is not really a test because I don't know the answer, but I am I am aware that they were only officially named the Dodgers um, at a certain point, but they. They had a number of nicknames before that, and you, I feel like if you go to Baseball Reference or Fangraphs, you see these names because maybe one year they were known as this one team, another there's another nickname. Do you, do you have do you have at the ready the, all of the nicknames that the Brooklyn and then um, the, the the Brooklyn franchise has had? Uh, I have a couple off the top of my head. I know that they uh, they were the Robins for many years. They okay. were the uh, the Super. I'm sorry. Super the super super boss super boss yeah super B A S the uh, the bridegrooms uh, and now now I'm cheating because I've looked it up the uh, and apparently originally it was the Grays and the Atlantics which I couldn't have told you Grays and the Atlantics so do you know the reasons for any of these uh, I do know the bridegrooms it was because at the time they had a uh, unusually high amount of players who had been married which I guess was a thing people cared about in you know 1895. And so, uh, so they just went with bridegrooms. They were, yeah. I mean, you know how it was back in the day. I mean, the, the branding wasn't what it is now. So it was really like the Brooklyn National League Club, and then the newspaper writers would almost come up with names to just stick in their headlines, and these things would stick or not stick. That, I I will say so, and uh, I'm probably wrong, but but I, I I give unnecessary weight to the past, and so to my mind, that's a that's a preferable way of doing things because to to just call the team the bridegrooms. And then wait five years, and now to say, oh, now you're the super boss. That to me, there is something pleasant about that. Uh, I, I would agree with that, I think. But could you imagine that happening today, where uh, you know teams are just being called something different because the local newspaper editor decides that he wants to give them a nickname? Yeah, well, I although guess, maybe maybe that would get us rid of the Redskins then. So maybe that would be good. I'm on, I, I probably give. Um, it's 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 funny you mentioned that too because I have so much trust in. Um, like early 20th century newspaper editors, whereas uh, modern newspaper editors, uh, I have no, I would have no faith in. Even though uh, that's probably, uh, I'm sure there's something hor- horribly wrong with that that line of thinking. 
I, I don't think I would disagree with you. Hmm. And then, uh, now, wait, did you, did you know any of What's a super buy? <laughs> I've actually been looking that up as you've been talking because I have no idea, and I figured maybe you'd ask. Well, yeah. um, well should I, ta- I, I Did you find it? No, I have no idea. Actually. Should I talk I a little bit longer? <laughs> you can keep talking. I'll keep looking it up. I still don't know what it means. I, I do know this, so, so keep looking it up. I will say uh, I, uh, it is my understanding that the team received the name Dodgers. Uh, before they were officially known as Dodgers, they received the nickname Dodgers uh, because it is short for trolley Dodgers, which is what the, the people of Brooklyn were known for uh, because they were trolleys. That is correct. There used to be many, many above-ground trolleys near where the park was, and I believe, uh, unfortunately, many of those people got hit and killed. And so that became a kind of grim and morbid nickname. Oh yeah, you know, have you ever have you ever done any reading on like the early days of um, automobiles? Because uh, people getting hit, um, people were getting hit all the time and killed. Uh, and, and at this point, it was you know it was at a point when only wealthier people could afford cars, and they would just run into like a gang of peasants uh, without any sort of. Uh, but there would be so no, no sort of like criminal criminal uh, consequence. They would just hmm, just killed a couple of peasants, and we don't even. We don't even have peasants anymore, probably because envi- they were all killed by automobiles. I'm envisioning Mr. Burns as you uh, say this. I would say, I would say you are on the right track. I would say captains of industry, uh, however they look. Yeah. Now, did you find out what a super buy is yet, though? According to uh, a website I've never heard of before, so you know, take that sourcing in mind. It appears that in the 1890s, it was some sort of circus entertainment spectacle uh, that was called the Super Bar, and it happened to be owned by a family named the Hanlins, and then later that decade, Ned Hanlon, who is no relation to that family, managed the team, and so they named it Hanlon's Superboss. Oh, my. That is a thing that you would never know, really, if you were removed. And yet it, I'm sure it made so much sense to the to the, those people who were contemporary to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a thing I know, and I don't, I don't know that that's improved my life in any way by being aware of this. Yeah. Hey, that's history in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, you're the one who studied it, not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so what the what the hell have we established? Did there were okay, we we knew, we got to the bottom of one of the things. Oh yeah, wait, and before that we were talking about going to games in Brooklyn, and before that we were talking about oh yeah, you worked in you worked in Nesson. That's how we find, that's how we got there. Yes. And be, oh, because because your your wife uh, your wife was uh, she likes the minor league baseball. Uh, yes, because it's uh, cheaper. Was, largely because what? it's cheaper. It's cheaper. It's smaller. She she really likes the uh, she likes to call it the shenanigans, but you know the kind of mid mid inning entertainment where you'll have you know like the cheerleaders and t shirt cannons and races and all that kind of stuff that's not really related to baseball in any way. Yeah, but it's it's uh, it's reassuringly schmaltzy. Uh, very much so, especially at a low single-A park for a short-season team where even I've never heard of half of these guys. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> oh, yeah. Although I, I did see uh, Carlos Beltran play at a game there one time. Yeah, I got uh, Justin Turner on a rehab. Okay, yeah, okay, so, yeah. What big, a... <laughs> big name, Justin Turner. <laughs> what a good, yeah, what a what a find, what a catch. Yeah. Um, all right, so... Well, I don't care where we go, but how did you end up? How did you end up writing about the Dodgers? Because because you, you say you were in Boston, you're there. You still like the Dodgers. You're working for Nesson, and then what happened? Uh, I kind of in college didn't really follow the Dodgers so much because um, you know they traded Piazza and the Fox ownership was terrible, and 
you know, this was really before MLB TV, so it was kind of hard to follow during college years, and I was focused on other stuff. And then I, I got back into it, you know, in the early 2000s when one of my roommates got extra innings so he could watch the Padres, so I started watching the team again. Uh, I started... Whoa, 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 back at, you had a roommate who was a Padres fan. He was from San Diego. Right, and that seems to me even somehow more obscure. If, if you're still in Boston at this point? Yes. So you you have a Padres, uh, you had a Padres ro- fan roommate? Right. Okay. Yeah. Who later ended up working for and being fired by the Dodgers. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> so uh, I'm trying to keep this short version. So I started watching the Dodgers again. I started following uh, some of the uh, the blogs. Like I found John Wiseman's Dodger Thoughts in you know 2004 or so. Um, or I really like. I have a soft spot in my heart for that night, 2005 team that was just really dreadfully atrocious and unwatchable because that was really the first time uh, I'd been able to watch like, the full 162 game season. Uh, so anyway, in 2007, I did what anybody does, and I started a blog, and for some inexplicable reason, people kept on reading it and reading it and reading it, uh, and that has sort of helped me. I write for Fangraphs and ESPN, and I'm a producer at Sports on Earth, uh, and it's it's really kind of all blossomed from there, and now it is no longer called Mike Sosa's Tragic Illness. It is called Dodgers Digest, both because um, I needed some other people to write with and because it's a thing I can actually say out loud without wanting to die inside. Right, and when you talked, uh, I think we we had this conversation when you when you're talking with uh, like an actual Dodger, uh, you don't have to say that whole name, or like when you're talking with the the Dodgers press people. You, well, that's that's right. When I was there in Arizona before I met up with you guys, I, I had a press pass and I walked in and I could say Dodgers Digest and not Mike Sosa's tragic illness because people think that means I really want Mike Sosa to die, which yeah, right. I generally do not. No, 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 no. I don't think uh, no. There are very few people you you should really wish that on in earnest. Um, because uh, you know that's the you, after you die, you can't do any anything more after that. Especially not in baseball. No, it's hard. Yeah, really, will it, it would uh, it puts the brakes on your career. That's for sure. Uh, I was trying to clandestinely figure out who was on the 2005 Dodgers. Uh, it looks like uh, Jeff Kent see. was a major player. Cesar Torres, Hisop Choi, uh, Derek Lowe was on that team. Oh yeah, Hisop Choi. He was uh, he was supposed to be quite good. I uh, I really was in I was into the idea of Hisop Choi, but uh, Jim Tracy was very much not, and he wanted to keep his job more than anything. He didn't care about developing young players, so he took failed catcher Jason Phillips and made him the first baseman, uh, and that was terrible. And they lost a lot of games, and then he got fired, and then Choi never panned out. Wait, I um I don't know if you're aware of the actual if you know more than I do in this regard the the Hisop Choi story. However, I'm looking at his numbers right now. I see that he was worth um, in that for that 2005 Dodgers team. He was worth about a win in about 350 plate appearances, which is not fantastic, but it's not miserable. Um, he for his career in a thousand plate appearances, he posted uh, a uh, an offensive line something slightly above average, and then he appears to have made his last um, professional. Played appearances in 2006, and there's nothing more about him. He he went back to Korea and uh, played there for many years. Oh, he did. Was he good? Uh, I Are you going to look it so. up? Are you going to look it I up? Have, I have, oh yeah, okay. Well, it's weird. Baseball Reference has his stats only for 2009 and 2010, even though he's played there since 2007. But in those two seasons, yeah, he hit 54 homers, uh, very good on base percentage. So yeah, it looks like he's been very very good in Korea. Oh yeah, they do only have those. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, good job, uh, Hisi Choi. Well, it didn't work out in the United States, but you know maybe it's good for him. He's playing 
you know, in his native land, he gets to see his family. I mean, unless he maybe he doesn't get along with his family, I don't know. I never that, I, that I couldn't speak to. I never got that deep with UCF Troy, but I, I did know when he was coming up with the Cubs. Also, do you know that for four consecutive years, according to Baseball Reference, what he was in he was within the top 100 of Baseball America's uh, Baseball America's top 100 prospects list. Yeah, he was really supposed to be a thing, and I remember he was up with the Cubs and playing first base, and there was a pop-up, and I, I want to say Kerry Wood was pitching, but I, I don't remember exactly. Somehow he got an elbow or a knee to the head, and he got a concussion, and that really sidetracked his career after that. Oh, well, that's also unfortunate. Yeah, but then I also remember he had a he, there was a doubleheader that Dodgers were in uh, Minnesota, I think, or Kansas City, uh, and he hit something like seven homers in three days, and that's when you really thought he was going to be something, uh, and that was really the last cool thing he ever did. Yeah, well, again, he didn't get a major league uh, plate appearance after the year uh, after the year 2005 as a 26-year-old. It, you know, I mean, uh, James Loney got a lot more rope than that. James, well, Loney's, James Loney still plays. Well, he's, he's good now. It just took him a really, really long time to get to that point. Yeah. Um, right, maybe it's a situation where if you if – you, uh, oh, yeah, wow, he is good this year. Look at those numbers he's putting up. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he was good last year too. If people have not uh, – if listeners have not regarded – uh, James Loney's player page, uh, you know, and you're not doing anything better right now. Likely you're not. You're already listening to this. Uh, do consider it because uh, he's the uh, best offensive season thus far. Striking striking out less than 10% of the time. Putting up good raw numbers in a very difficult hitter's park. Yeah, after many, many years of being unbelievably frustrating and mediocre. Yeah. So are you good with, uh, when you talk to players, are you good at that? Uh, I like to think I'm okay with it. It helps that, for example... Um, AJ Ellis has read my blog for several years and is aware of who I am, so that was helpful. Um, I got to talk to he's a good their... he's a good one, AJ Ellis. Oh yeah, he's like he is like the best dude. He's the friendliest guy, and he's uh, one of the few players who is very well versed in the advanced sabermetric stats. And so uh, he's he's uh, aware at I'm not going to say all times he's aware, to, but what his uh, strengths are and weaknesses and this sort of thing. Yeah, well, what I talked to him about, and I think I ended up writing about it for Fangraphs, is that I asked him whether he knew that, A, pitch framing existed, and B, very much did not like him. And he said that he was aware of it, and uh, he actually knew exactly where he was strong and weak, and that he's attempting to work on that based on that that knowledge. Mm, that must be, uh, well, for you, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a goldmine. Yeah, no, it was, it was very interesting of him to, to acknowledge that, and... Um, Unfortunately, he's missed most of the season with knee surgery, so we haven't really had a chance to put it into practice to see if he's been any better. And uh, what about the other guys that aren't, uh, you know, sort of uh, ready to go for? Are you good at talking to them? Uh, some of them. I can't say I have a ton of experience in it. I mean, some of the guys, you know, the Dodgers have a lot of big names, right? So, uh, you know, Matt Kemp is only going to talk to who he wants to talk to. You mm-hmm. know, some of the guys, they only want to talk in Spanish, which does not help a non-Spanish speaker like myself. But no, I, I mean, I. I have no problem with going up to players and asking them questions. He just gotta, he's gotta come prepared with something smart because I think we've seen with Eno lately. He went up to Granke and Dan Aaron, um, and as soon as they realized that he actually had an interesting question, they were very more than happy to talk to him. But yeah, actually, him with like, hey, how you doing? Eh, it's not gonna get you too far. I've, I have no, I have noticed that. Uh, I will say for my part that uh, baseball players are to, are generally pretty willing to talk about baseball. Um, but it, what's what's curious, right, is that. Um, uh, it's not entirely common, and uh, I might be talking out of my ass here, but it seems as though that frequently baseball players are not asked questions about baseball. They're asked questions about their emotions. Um, I, I think that's probably true because 
that is the kind of thing that you need to get from the source. You can't really look at a stat sheet or anything and, and try to get that. But very few players are going to really talk to you honestly about that. Right. I mean, I just remember probably one of my earliest exposures to, to really being in a clubhouse was, uh, was towards the beginning of last year in Milwaukee. And uh, I just had a question for Alfredo, uh, Alfredo Figaro, right? I was curious about it because he'd come over from Japan. I wanted to ask him. Um, he had been moved into relief, and I was curious if he was going to retain the same um, – if he had plans on retaining the same pitch mix in relief as he did in, as a starter. And he was very he was uh, very kind of me, even though his English – I mean, his English was, I mean, way better than my Spanish. And I think his Japanese is better than my – and the point is he spoke three languages pretty decently. Uh, but then someone else who was standing next to him asked him something to this effect, like, was it good to get a win out today after the trouble the team had last year with extra inning games or something like that? The curious thing being that Alfredo Figaro was not was nowhere near the Brewers the year before. Uh, but it does seem as though that uh, sometimes players are asked questions like these where there's really – it's like a no-win situation. Yeah, I mean, you gotta you got to come prepared. There's a lot of times where there's really dumb questions like that that immediately – just crushes any credibility you might have had. So if you don't do your research, you don't have something interesting, you shouldn't really expect to get valuable content out of a player who probably has better things to do than talk to you anyway. Yeah. Now, here's a question. You mentioned that uh, for reasons that you, that you don't particularly understand, uh, you don't particularly understand, uh, people seem to enjoy your writing. Um, what? But here's a question, and, and, and it's allowed you to essentially to make a career of it or you, get, you, know, you can make enough money so you don't die. You can live in New York and not die. Um, at least not from, though you know, starvation or lack of shelter. But uh, do you feel? What do you think that it is that you that you do or thing that you value um, that might resonate with readers? Well, that is a it's a tough question because that requires me to praise myself. Which no, 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 no. Generally I'm, uncomfortable. With. No, no, don't. No, I, I. You don't need to do that. But you could talk about. Uh, I mean, but you could talk about the things that you things that you value. And we'll assume that that's also that that's the thing that's resonating with the reader. Sure. Well, I like to think that I can, you know, I, I, I am a aficionado of advanced stats, right? So I can dig behind pitcher wins and batting average and that, and, and find something that's actually interesting that really tells you a little bit about how the game's going on. But I like to think that I can also express that in a way that's accessible to the person who may not have a background in stats or may not, you know, care about how the stats are put together. And then that's actually somewhat interesting to them because they learned something. Um, and I like to do it in a, a humorous way. I mean, I'm certainly no professional comedian, but I think that if, if something is really dry, then people aren't going to be interested in it no matter how valuable it is because you know, you're not trying to do a professional peer review research paper here. Um, and so I think if you can have it be entertaining but also educational, that's the kind of thing that, that will resonate with people. And I like to think that I can do that at least moderately well. Right, and also it should be you no. Know, you're not. You're also not in the front office. So right. So it's not just that you need to. It's not like you just need to pass on the the hardest data or the the hardest analysis. It's it's a for you can make the consumption of what you're presenting as uh, you know as pleasant as possible. Right, and it's for the public. And I, I like to think I'm not a homer either. I mean, I I will certainly not shy away from saying, hey, my favorite team is doing something really really stupid because that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, it, that's how that's how many fans feel. I think now um, you work. So you work obviously, for, you, despite your what are your tasks to do? I think generally you work from home. Yeah, uh, I do for yeah. for about the last eight months or so. Yeah, about the last eight months. And how's that going? I love it. You love I, it. I I used to work before this. I worked for a, uh, 
a major PR firm building websites for soulless, terrible corporations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I like this considerably better. So uh, do you ever fall into – do you – do you ever fall into a situation where you forget to leave the house? Does that ever does that ever happen? Uh, I would say it's less about forget than just don't. But I do try, <laughs> I, especially this winter it, here in the Northeast, it was particularly brutal. So it was very easy to look outside and go just nope. But now that it's getting warm, I, I do try to make sure that I uh, I get outside. I get some you know as fresh air as you can get in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, no. Go to the gym. Make sure I don't die. No, I don't know if this happens to you. Um, presently, I, I'm here in the, my apartment here. And um, my my wife is out of town, right? She's uh, she's meeting her mother up in uh, her mother flew from Michigan and Cali flew from here to to Ireland, right? So they're having fun in Ireland together, and that's great. Uh, but while she's gone, though, and this is not uncommon, because um, <laughs> you know I get, I become so accustomed to living with her, so we have like a you know a pretty regular dinner time, and we have some rituals in which we partake together. Now not like lighting candles and praying at altars, but yeah, you know, just things we do that are part of our day. When she goes away, however, between between it working from home and then just my own, and, and then in her absence, I develop. I do. Just, I just become the most disgusting. <laughs> like, and I, I just have no uh, frame of reference. Like, you know, like the the first day I was here when she was gone, like I just didn't go to bed. I didn't go to bed till 4.30 or something, and it's not because I was doing anything of particular value. I might have written a post at night, but it was almost – it was probably by accident. Like really just – like today I followed – today I sat down, and I was going to have like a little like quiet time with like a cup of coffee, read something that wasn't baseball. But what I ended up doing was like I was just, like, curious about one thing. And then, because uh, we're moving to New Hampshire, so I was like, "Oh, I wonder like who famous people are from New Hampshire." And then I saw that like a famous person from New Hampshire was Elizabeth Coop, who is the woman from Happy Endings. And then I watched a couple of interviews with her uh, on like she was on Conan. And then I was like, "Oh, look at like Olivia Wilde." And then I watched like five interviews with uh, Olivia Wilde, very attractive and talented. Woman. So, so you've, you've discovered the internet, basically. Yeah, right. But but there's no there's the problem is that when, when my wife is gone, there's no check on it whatsoever, um, and so all of my worst, like I just it's like to the most banal and and just disgusting uh, sort of line of inquiry. And I'm curious if this is uh, now that you're working from home, if this is something that do you ever devolve into these these sorts of traps? Uh, when she's away, I would say that that happens with food, where I will say. Oh, well, she's not going to be here for a couple of days. I could totally order a giant plate of buffalo wings and just eat it myself for two days, which is gross. And then she'll come back and say, what do you want for dinner? And I'll say, the greenest, healthiest thing you could possibly come up with. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yes, I, yes, yes. I bought, as soon as she left, as soon as she left, I bought a um, – I really enjoy it. It's called Terrine de Campagne, and it's just a little – it's like a little like a little like pate, like a spread, just of pork parts. And it's so good, um, and it's just it's not good for you. And uh, and then yesterday, uh, yesterday, uh, by the time I was done with my work, it was past eight, so all the stores had closed. So I just didn't eat, and I don't know if that happens to you too, but like I just, I was like, "Yep, okay, the day is over." I just, I'm just not eating anymore today because I can't. Um, yeah, it's it's terrible. Yeah, no, I, I remember to eat. I mean, you know, working from home is both a good and bad thing in the sense that it can be like. Oh, it's three thirty. I've been working all day. I should probably take a shower now yeah. because you have that that flexibility, um, which is both a super positive and something you actually need to 
keep a close eye on, lest you become a disgusting waste of a man. Are you good at delineating? Are you good at delineating work time versus not work time, or do you feel like it's all work? It's terrible. Time? I'm terrible because part of it is because my job is the thing that it's it's baseball and sports which I love anyway. So it's like I can stop working and then say, "Oh, baseball's on cool." Yeah, I will say the one and I yes, and I agree with that. The one advantage to it is I used to um I used to browse the internet. Uh, I used to browse the internet in a and and my and my wife would be like or maybe she was just my girlfriend back then. She would say, "Stop browsing stop browsing the internet. It's time for you know, us to eat dinner or like we have to go to someone's house or something like that or just stop it because it's, it's sad. What you're doing is sad and, and somehow you're making the world worse by doing it. But um, now, now when I'm ever on browse the internet, I could just say it's work and uh, she she can't really – she can't say anything. So That is absolutely valid and also incredibly dangerous. Yeah, right. It is. Yeah, because you you should really only spend. It is for me. You know what's funny is that sometimes on weekends I'll actually produce as many posts as I would during the weekday. The difference is this: during the week I say, "Oh, I need to sit at my computer all day," and so I feel like I've really done it. During the weekend, I'll hardly buy it at all. But maybe I'll catch like an hour and a half of a game, and I'll get like two posts out of it, and I'll just do it. And I think you know maybe if I was if I was a smarter person. And I was good at, um, you know, again making those same delineations, a good planning of my day. Then I would actually just live my life, and then the the, the posts would come out of it naturally. Yeah, I think that's that is what you uh, everybody should attain for or a dream dream to attain. But it's very difficult to actually make happen. Yeah, man, that's life in a nutshell, isn't it? Yes, it is. We've had history in a nutshell. Now we've had life in a nutshell. Here, uh, I'm going to let you go in a second. Um, here's a question. What do you know about the the baseball team, the Negro League, uh, the Negro League team, uh, known as the Atlanta Black Crackers? Uh, I know that they were a team that existed. Yeah. Beyond that, I don't know that I know much details, but I also don't know where you're going with this. Uh, do you think that the name Black Crackers is an amusing name? <laughs> uh, well, you made me laugh by asking that, so I, I guess we'll go with yes. It is a very Interesting choice for a name. Yeah, I was looking at uh, occasionally at the Knockgrass. I'll do a post just on like five hats, five caps, ball caps that are available on eBay, and I found an Atlanta Black Crackers cap that's available. And um, but they're they're called uh, Black Crackers, and it put me in this mind. I don't know if you remember basketball, if you ever watched any basketball before, but there was a, uh, a point guard who came up with the Sacramento Kings named Jason Williams. You remember J Will J Dub? Uh- is that the uh, not the one who killed his limo driver? Right, and also not the one who got uh, who crashed in like a motorcycle accident either. Right. Yeah, there are a bunch of Jason ones. Pretty common name, it turns out. No, this was the white one. White uh, chocolate, right? Was that him? His name was White Chocolate, and I was thinking, and so I thought that I saw. I said, "Huh, uh, Black Crackers, Black Cracker is kind of like White Chocolate, except it's also not like White Chocolate." <laughs> I find it interesting that you you say it, the Black Crackers. Whereas I might say it, the Black Crackers. The Black Crackers. Black Crackers. The Black Crackers. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't matter. Well, you say it again. The, uh, the Atlanta Black Crackers. Because it's it's more of the emphasis on the, the crackers than on the black. Because <laughs> then it would be like... I'm, I've looked this up, too. Apparently, uh, they didn't actually call themselves that until much later. The fans just started calling them that. Right. They were the Cubs, I believe. 
Um, I guess not according to Wikipedia, but then when has Wikipedia ever been fully accurate? Uh, oh, no, you're right. You're actually correct. You're right. Yeah. The Atlanta Cubs. In this particular Semi-professional. Case, right, but then the fans knew, the, knew them. They, the, well, so, okay, great. So the fans are the great ones. The fans are the ones who are like, yeah, you guys are the, you guys are the Black Crackers. Yeah, for Wait, how, uh, how do you say it again? The, <laughs> the Atlanta Black Crackers. Black Crackers? Now, I've, now I don't even remember how no, I said it. No, no, you don't. Well, uh, hey, listen, uh, Mike Petriello, I'm going to ask you to stick around for a couple moments, and maybe we could discuss some of those dirty stories from uh, the 2003 Red Sox series. <laughs> sure. Is there feel, you feel like there's anything that uh, we have not covered that uh, it would be it would be a, it would be criminal not to have discussed? I no, I think as we've been chatting for over an hour, that people have more than enough of me that they can stand. Is that true? We've done that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that seems reasonable. All right. Well, uh, well, thank you, thank you, Mike Petriello. Thank you, Carson. All right, I'm going to say here's your closing. That is Mike Petriello uh, of Mike Petriello of Dodgers Digest, nay Mike's social tragic illness. Of um, it's also Mike Petriello of Fangraphs.com, and maybe also Sports on Earth. Uh, I do not write for Sports on Earth. I, I work for them, You're but an employee I, uh, of an employee. Yes, of. Uh, and I, I write for ESPN as well. Through oh, you don't write writer for ESPN. Look at that. All right. That is, yeah, like I said, that's that. All of that stuff pertains to Mike Petriello. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fingerhead.